Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the LSE and welcome to this Forum for European Philosophy panel on sexual difference, Thinking with Kathleen Malibu. Uh, I'm Simon Glendinning. I'm the director of the Forum for European Philosophy and uh, it's my great pleasure to welcome our speakers here tonight. What we're going to do is uh, Kathleen will speak first for about 30 minutes and then there'll be responses from um, Michael and Danielle. Then there should be, hopefully, if they're disciplined, lots of time for you to ask questions as, as well. Well, it's, uh, our topic tonight, sexual difference, is, um, is a bit of a minefield. On, in some respects, it looks remarkably uh, simple. If you look at Biology 101, there are uh, chromosomes of sex difference, an XX if you're female and uh, XY if you're male, and it's called genotypic sex and they will distinguish in biology between the genotype and the phenotype, which is uh, the phenotype would be the, as it were, the expression of the characteristic expression of the, of the gene in, in terms of internal and uh, external genitalia in its involvement in an environment. So it's not, a, as it were, a purely uh, genetic affair. So in, in biology, you get the, the genotype and the phenotype, and then in sociology, in their 101, they'll probably add into this norms of uh, sex identity, social norms, historically so social norms, where you distinguish between, often, in, particularly in English language uh, sociology, between sex and gender, where the latter gender identity will be this uh, particularly culturally informed dimension of femininity and masculinity, <laughs> also involving subjective perceptions of your uh, sex identity or, or of your sex difference. Uh, it may be a self-appraisal, very often, though, in terms of already existing <coughs> cultural norms. We can talk about a very feminine presence, and this would be, at that point, when you're talking about the cultural norm dimension, it would be indifferent as to whether this was... Uh, either uh, in, in the biological terms, either male or female. Uh, then you get into the extraordinary dimension of the fact that for a long time a, a feminine male would have been associated with um, certain sexual orientations, but that would certainly be uh, something far too crude. You could have um, not all gay men are feminine and not all straight men are very masculine, or masculine at all. <laughs> And uh, so sexual orientation would give another dimension to this, another matter for thinking. We have this sort of extraordinary cloudy field of possibilities. Maybe in what we do tonight, some of that uh, cloud will be dispersed. We'll see. But the biology and the sociology, perhaps none of it is very telling. Because if we look at the differences between men and women... Uh, compare them to the differences between human beings and spiders, you might think that uh, those differences aren't very sharp in the end, that uh, certainly not as sharp as we sometimes like to think. So differences, it seems to be a kind of almost um, unending field of similarities. But what about this idea of the difference? As the philosopher Cora Diamond once put it, 
We form the idea of this difference, so not differences between men and women, but the difference between men and women. We form the idea of this difference, create the concept of the difference, knowing perfectly well the overwhelming, obvious similarities. So in our lives, as it were, we live lives informed with an idea of this difference, despite everybody knowing that when we look at the differences, they're certainly not as sharp as some people like to think. Well, to discuss what we've made of this difference and perhaps to help us through the cloudy field of possibilities that we inhabit today, we've got three wonderful guests led off by Kathleen Malibu, as I said, who will be giving the first and and, uh, most lengthy contribution with an opportunity to speak for about 30 minutes. And I think she'll be mainly exploring issues around the idea of the specifically female subject. Then we'll have responses from Michael O'Rourke and then from Daniel Sands and then, as I say, hopefully uh, some time for discussion. But to leave it to them, I'll leave it first to Catherine Malibu. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Simon, for inviting me and thank you, Michael and Danielle, to have accepted to respond to me. And um, so I've written that talk because it is difficult for me to improvise on such a topic and because I think that um, we need to bring some philosophy in such a question. So I start. It is a woman who will be my subject. Woman will not have been my subject. I intend to situate my discourse between these two well-known statements by Jacques Derrida in his book, Spurs, Nietzsche's Style. In French, la femme sera mon sujet, la femme n'aura pas été mon sujet. The French sujet, subject, designates both subject, subjectivity, and topic. Derrida's statements then mean that women will and won't constitute the topic of his lecture, which lets us immediately understand that at the same time, that if woman is not, cannot be a topic, properly speaking, it is because precisely the woman is not and cannot be a subject. Or to say it differently, woman can only be dealt with as a topic, as a non-subject, that is, as an always already deconstructed subject. The feminine then designates, in in Derrida's lecture, the impossibility of the woman as a topic, as a subject, that is also as an essence. Deconstruction appears in that respect to be one of the most consistent and operative anti-essentialist discourse. A discourse which, of course, immediately resonates with the leading post-feminist and gender theory orientations from the end of the 20th century. There is no such thing as an essence of woman. Such was and still is a major claim of gender theory. This is precisely such a deprivation of essence that I would like to interrogate here in order to challenge this proposition according to which there would not be such thing as an essence of woman. In order to do so, I will bring a third sentence into the Derridean duet. Woman will be my subject. Woman will not have been my subject. And what I add is, woman negates 
this negation itself. This helps me to situate the woman not as a non-subject, but as a negative subject. That is, a both negated and negating subject, the active result of a double negation. The woman negates the negation of her essence. The difference between a non-subject and a negative subject is that the first non-subject is only passive. A non-subject refers to impotentiality, impotency even. The second, on the contrary, is a locus of power. It pertains to the dialectical power of transforming a deprivation of essence into a form of essence. Why then the need of introducing this third term, this third sentence, of reintroducing dialectics after deconstruction? Stating that woman is not a subject or has no essence, that the feminine is the paradoxical expression of the impossibility of the woman, has long been, as I said, considered an emancipatory feminist statement or move. I think, on the contrary, that this is nothing but a violent gesture. My contention is that depriving women of essence is violent. And in my book, Changing Difference, I even argue that there might be a secret community between this theoretical violence and domestic violence in the practical sphere. In both cases, the woman is negated. The problem is then how to counter such a violence without returning to what is called essentialism. I propose here the idea of a minimal concept of the woman, according to which woman refers to a subject overexposed to a specific type of violence. This minimal concept is to be understood in relation to the negative subject previously exposed. It designates an identity formed by negation. The woman would be formed by what negates her. Violence alone would confer her her being. Hence, woman as a negative essence will be my subject. Woman as a dialectical essence will be my subject. The dialectical plasticity of essence will be my subject. You might find this very abstract, and it is true that the idea of a negative definition of identity may appear surprising. But at the same time, it is certainly not new. One of its most striking expressions is undoubtedly that of Jean-Paul Sartre in his book, Réflexion sur la question juive, anti-Semite and Jew. I read from that book, the Jew is one whom other men consider a Jew. That is the simple truth from which we must start. It is the anti-Semite who makes the Jew. Anti-Semitic violence makes the Jew, end of quote. Such a making is precisely for Sartre the making or the fashioning of an essence the essence of someone, I quote again, who asserts his claim in the face of the disdain shown toward him. End of quote. Of course, this negated, negate, negating essence is also positive to the extent that the Jew, according to Sartre, makes himself by himself a Jew against the very violence which is done to them. Such an essence, as we see, does not pre-exist its negation, it is the result of a negation. 
In order to explore the kind of ontology required by this negative essence, an essence shaped by destruction and violence, and before returning to Sartre in conclusion, I will have to explain my first statement, according to which anti-essentialism is violent. I will then leave Sartre for a moment and go back to Derrida. So Spurs, Nietzsche's style. The expression, woman will be my subject, appears right in the beginning of Derrida's lecture as a substitution. Initially, Derrida says, he wanted to talk about style, but decided that woman instead would be his subject. I quote, the title for this lecture was to have been the question of style. However, it is woman who will be my subject. What matters is what comes next. Still, Derrida pursues, one might wonder whether that does not really amount to the same thing, woman and style, or it is to the other. The possibility is then open to think of style and the woman as one and the same thing. This identity is not simple, though. It paradoxically proceeds from a dividing line, and this dividing line, Derrida shows, operates in Nietzsche himself. It cuts through his philosophy and helps us distinguishing between two kinds of voices, two kinds of discourses about women precisely. There are at least two concepts of the woman in Nietzsche. One is essentialist, the other is anti-essentialist. This double discourse also coincides with the double discourse on style, as well as with double discourse on the Jew, quite different than that of Sartre, and this is why I will compare Sartre's approach to Derrida's one. Derrida's reading of Nietzsche in Spurs entirely revolves around Nietzsche's two affirmations, the first in Beyond Good and Evil, according to which truth is a woman, so this is what Nietzsche says, truth is a woman, second in Twilight of the Idols, Nietzsche says the idea becomes female There are obviously two contradictory understandings of these affirmations by Nietzsche himself, as if there were two women in him. The first understanding, as I announced, is essentialist. As we know, there are multiple expressions of an anti-feminism and a misogyny in Nietzsche which pertain to this essentialism. To say that the truth is feminine amounts to saying that the essence of woman is falsity, seduction, illusion, appearance. Therefore, it is necessary, Nietzsche says, to remain far away from women. I quote, it is necessary to keep one's distance from the feminine operation. Or, another quote, woman, inasmuch as truth, is skepticism and veiling dissimulation. In that sense, the concept of woman pertains to the genealogy of the Western metaphysical concept of truth as the history of an era. According to Nietzsche, truth, like woman, is an essential in essentiality. The idea of a becoming female of the idea, which is the second quote from, the Twilight, from Twilight of the Idols, is a paroxystic expression of this contention. Nietzsche says the idea becomes female which means what he says a little further on, because it becomes Christian. The woman, as an era, as a seducer, appears also as the Christian essence of the Western concept of truth. How can we understand that? 
Derrida explains, female and Christian refer to the same thing, which is castration. The woman, and this is her traditional essence, as it is explained in philosophy, is castrating. And Christianity is interpreted in Twilight of the Idols as castratism. Nietzsche says castratismus. Why? I quote Nietzsche. The extraction of a tooth or the plucking out of an eye are precisely described as Christian operations. It is these, the violations that are perpetrated by the Christian idea, that are the idea become woman. The idea is an abstraction, an extraction. In that sense, it is a castration. And here, we find the traditional association between woman and castration, the traditional contention that woman is castrating by essence. There would then be a double negation of the woman in Nietzsche as falsehood and as Christian. So we await here a kind of reversal by Derrida. And it happens because, as I said, there are two women in Nietzsche, the essentialist one, castrating, etc., and the other, which I will expose now. But precisely, this is what interests me, as I will show later, this reversal, which happens in Derrida's text, is not dialectical. Immediately, Derrida says, there is another woman in Nietzsche. At this moment, Derrida writes, the truth of woman, the truth of truth, Nietzsche turns it about. And the possibility of another reading of Nietzsche opens itself here. I quote Derrida again. Woman, at the same time, in Nietzsche, is recognized and affirmed as an affirmative power, a dissimulatress, an artist, a Dionysiac. And no longer is it man who affirms her. She affirms herself in and of herself in man. Castration does not take place. And anti-feminism is, is in its truth overthrown. So Derrida shows that there is two truths of the woman in Nietzsche. But again, he shows that these two contentions are coexisting without any dialectics. What does the second understanding of Nietzsche's statements about women consists, consist in? It consists at, in drawing a different conclusion from the association between women and appearance or dissimulation, a conclusion which this time is not essentialist. Lying, dissimulating, seducing are still said to be female operations, but these can be understood this time as artistic gestures, mimics, imitations, without models, without essences precisely. The woman and the artist philosopher now appear in Nietzsche as inseparable. And that's why Nietzsche says, das Weib ist so artistisch, woman is so artistic. And we can oppose uh, what he said a moment ago, like woman is a liar or a seducer, to this new statement, woman is so artistic. The second way of reading appears through Nietzsche's issues of style, through Nietzsche's own style, through the fact that there can be no philosophy without a style. And the woman, which of course also erases here any essential difference between the feminine and the masculine, appears here precisely as the style of truth. From this perspective, 
from the perspective of this second reading, which opens the issue of the woman artist, of the woman as style, Derrida says there is no such thing as the essence of the woman. So the essence of the woman disappears because Derrida says the woman averts, she is averted of herself, out of the depth, endless and unfathomable, she engulfs and distorts all vestige of essentiality, of identity, of property. A last quote, woman, that is truth, will not be pinned down. In truth, woman, truth, will not be pinned down. Another Nietzsche then appears, a genuinely feminist Nietzsche, another woman in Nietzsche without essence, a woman with no essential subjectivity. That's why Derrida can say, in the end, it is woman who will be my subject, and woman, woman will not have been my subject. Essence, non-essence. As I said, this conclusion looks like a dialectical one, but it is not one. The negation of the negation of essence does not redouble itself to produce the concept of a negative essence. It just remains what it is, the result of a simple negation. Essentialism, no essentialism. Woman has an essence, woman has no essence. The two negations are juxtaposed, Hegel would say. They are not speculatively redoubling each other to produce something out of this absence of essence. Such a juxtaposition, essence, non-essence, is precisely what appears to me as violent, as a violence done to women. Where does this violence originate itself? In other terms, what I mean is not to say that woman has no essence, or no, to say that woman has an essence, and to say that woman has no essence, according to me, is not a satisfactory answer to the question, what is a woman? Because in both cases, it is violent. Why is the second affirmation violent? Because it originates, as I said, in the artistic paradigm. The link which is drawn in Nietzsche's discourse between the artist and the woman, a link which in his turn Derrida takes for granted, in reality appears to me to be the expression of a highly repressive and normative ontological frame. Because it still pertains to the framework of simulation and dissimulation. The fact that such imitative powers are said to be always already what they are, copies without models, without originals, does not change the fact that they remain imitations. Here is the violence. To encapsulate artists and women in dissimulation, even if once again this dissimulation is said to be without an original, that is, without essence, is violent. I quote Derrida. It is impossible to dissociate the questions of art, style, and truth from the question of the woman. And the question, what is a woman, is itself suspended by the simple formulation of their common problematic. The question is suspended, but dissimulation is not. The absence of essence leaves imitation untouched. In Gender Trouble, Judith Butler also defines gender performativity as a capacity to imitate without a model. So the artistic paradigm is present here again. 
One simulates one's own gender without referring to an original, a quote Butler. The notion of gender parody defended here does not assume that there is an original which such parodic identities imitate. Indeed, the parody is of the very notion of an original. Gender parody reveals that the original identity after which gender fashions itself is an imitation without an origin. To be more precise, it is a production which in effect, that is, in its effects, postures as an imitation." End of quote. Another affirmation which is very close to Derrida's conclusions in Spurs, I quote Butler again, genders can, neither be, can be neither true nor false, neither real nor apparent, neither original nor derived. As credible bearers of those attributes, however, genders can also be rendered thoroughly and radically incredible. Parody, imitation without an origin, postured imitation, all these terms again are meant to deconstruct the original copy model, but they still refer to it as their structural schema. If I had time, I would demonstrate that art since Nietzsche, perhaps, has become the paradigmatic expression of all non-essentialist conceptions of gender identity, whatever their differences and apparent lines of fracture. My claim is that such an artistic understanding of the absence of essence is catastrophic. It is a catastrophe for women, for gender identity in general, and for artists. Artistic ontology is catastrophic to art. Artistic ontology is catastrophic to women. It is catastrophic to gender identity in general. What I characterize as the highly repressive and normative potential of such an, an ontology appears, for example, but what an example, in the passage devoted to Jews, I come back to this question, in Spurs, I quote Derrida. In its eulogy of play-acting, it talks about theater and art in Nietzsche. In, this, in its eulogy of play-acting, of the delight in dissimulation, of histrionics and the dangerous concept of the artist, joyful wisdom ranks both Jews and women among those expert mountbanks, the artists. That Jews and women should be thus associated does not seem at all insignificant, and the fact that Nietzsche often considers them in parallel roles might, in fact, be related to the motive of castration and simulacrum for which circum circumcision is the mark, indeed the name of the mark. Such is the indication of the conclusion to the fragments on the histrionic capacity. He quotes Nietzsche. What good actor at present is not a Jew? The Jew also, as a born literary man, exercises his power on the basis of his histrionic capacity. For the literary man is essentially an actor. He plays the part of expert, of specialist. Finally, women. Women. If we consider the whole history of women, and what is such a thing, are they not obligated, first of all, and above all, to be actresses? End of quote. So Nietzsche has this quote, quote, quoted by Derrida, and both seem to find this perfectly normal. 
Of course, Derrida will show that as there is a double discourse on women in Nietzsche, there is a double discourse on artists and on Jews in Nietzsche. One essentialist and inacceptable, and the other non-essentialist and already deconstructive. Nevertheless, it appears to me that the latter remains extremely dangerous and ambiguous because, again, it assimilates a non-essentialist identity with simulation. In my eyes, to claim that all women are artists is no less inacceptable than to claim that all Jews are actors or that all genders are parodic. Why is this anti-essentialism artistically missing its goal? artistically conceived missing its goal because it is guilty of an ontological mistake it confuses essence and being one can say that women or Jews or artists have no being but it is not possible to say ontologically speaking that they are without essence such a deprivation is again a violent deprivation of power the distinction between being and essence is present in all foundational philosophical systems. And Hegel is certainly the philosopher who insists most powerfully upon their difference. Being, he says, has no foundation in itself. It is an immediate presence which can easily disappear. This is the beginning of the science of logic. Now is morning, tonight will be night. So being is versatile. But the essence is something else. It is the past of being. Let me quote just the beginning of the logic of essence. The truth of being is essence. Being is the immediate, but essence is the past of being. The German language has preserved essence in the past participle, gewesen, of the verb to be. For essence is past, but but timelessly past being. Essence is the recollection of being into itself and then appears as its past, what makes it possible as being and as truth, what I characterized as its plasticity, essence as the plasticity of being. Being is always immediately submitted to the violence of the other beings, negations. To be is to be negated. And in the first place, this constant debasement appears as a lack of essence or of consistency. It seems that the law of being is constant negation or death or disappearance. But when it is negated, it redoubles this negation and becomes essence. That is, it transforms this absence of being into into some kind of consistency. From this, I will come back in conclusion to the woman. Woman will be my subject. Woman will not have been my subject. Woman negates this negation negation itself. This third moment is the moment when the negation of woman's being reveals the essence of woman as her own capacity to change and negate the negation of her being itself. The plastic essence appears as a metamorphic power which exceeds simulation as a conitus, an energy, a force of resistance which coincides with an identity. To go back to Sartre, we can refer here to this affirmation. To be a Jew is to be thrown into, to be abandoned to the situation of a Jew. And at the same time, 
It is to be responsible in and through one's own person for the destiny and the very nature of the Jewish people. For whatever the Jew says or does, and whether he has a clear or vague conception of his responsibilities, it is as if all his acts were subject to a Kantian imperative, as if he had to ask himself before each act, if all Jews acted as I'm going to do, what would happen to Jewish life? And to the questions he asked himself, what would happen if all the Jews were Zionists, or, on the contrary, if they were all converted to Christianity, if all Jews denied they were Jews, etc., he must make reply alone and unaided by choosing himself. And I think we could absolutely substitute women here for Jew. The Jew makes himself an anti-Semite in order to break all his ties with the Jewish community, and yet he finds that community again in the depth of his heart, for the, he experiences in his very flesh the humiliation that the anti-Semites impose upon other Jews, Sartre says again. So, according to such a definition, the essence would not be something substantial, but it would be what Sartre calls being in a situation, être en situation. And again, I think that if to be a Jew is to be in the situation of being a Jew, we can say exactly the same thing, that the essence of women consists in being in a situation of being a woman. This situational essence is what I called earlier the minimal essence, or the essence formed by negation, or the negation of the negation of being as a positive, empowering movement. I close now. This is the last paragraph. I will be asked to specify the specificity of the woman if it is true that what can be said about her apply also to Jews or to anyone fighting for recognition or equality of rights. I think that all cases of violence are specific and that if there is a general and dialectical structure of essence or essentiality, there are specific and particular types of violence. The particularity of violence made to women domestic abuse, sexual abuse, forced prostitution, exploitation, machism, is what makes the woman. We are all in a situation, but there is a plasticity of situations. And from the situation I'm in, as a woman, and not out of imitation, I can say that women will have been my topic. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Okay, can everybody hear me okay? Um, my response is called This Sexual Difference, which is not one. In a 1994 book called Feminism Meets Queer Theory, Gail Rubin and Judith Butler are at cross purposes about what they mean by sexual difference. And 20 years later, it seems timely to revisit with Catherine Malibu, some of those terminological confusions and impasses. In the interview Sexual Traffic, Butler asked Rubin about her shift from gender as a paradigm to thinking sex, and Rubin responds, I was trying to deal with issues of sexual difference and sexual variety. 
And when I use sexual difference, I realize from reading your paper against proper objects that you are using it in a very different way than I am. I am using the term to refer to different sexual practices. You seem to be using it to refer to gender. The choreography continues with misunderstandings on both sides until Butler hazards a definition of sexual difference, which is not one, or at least not hers. She replies, most of the people who work in a sexual difference framework actually believe there is something persistent about sexual difference, understood in terms of masculine and feminine. At the same time, they tend to engage psychoanalysis or some theory of the symbolic. Jean-Luc Nancy's reading of sexual difference as sexual difference would not seem to fit neatly with Butler's schematization since he does engage Freudo-Lacanian psychoanalysis and a theory of the symbolic, but he does not place his faith in the intractability of the masculine-feminine binary. In The There Is of Sexual Relation in Corpus II, Nancy's writings on sexuality, he says that the difference of the sexes is not the difference between two or several things, each one existing for itself as one, a sex, It is not like a difference between species or between individuals or a difference of nature or degree. It is the difference of sex as differing from itself. For every living sexual being and in all regards, sex is the being's differing from itself, differing understood as differentiating itself according to multiple measures and according to all those tangled processes that go by the names masculine, feminine, homo, hetero, active, passive, and so on, and differing understood as a species multiplying indefinitely the singularities of its representatives. So what Nancy is saying is that there is no difference of the sexes, but rather, first and always, sex differing and deferring itself. Derrida's difference, in terms of what Nancy is claiming about sexes differing and deferring as relation or spacing, must therefore be sexual. In a note, Nancy explains, that is to say, ontological difference is sexual and vice versa, which no doubt affects being in its very beingness. Etance ou estance. So for Nancy, presumably reading Derrida, reading Heidegger, Derrida's being is sexed and or sexing. There is nothing, Nancy says, that could be before or outside spacing. Nothing could be before or outside the self-relation to sex that makes sex self-differing and self-deferring and that in this self-differing and deferring of sex may indeed create the very structure of what Lacan calls the symbolic. Some questions press themselves here. How does one move from the psychoanalytic notion of sexual difference, which is so knotted up with the intractability and irreducibility of the male-female binary and the effects of castration, to the queer, deconstructive or perverse, in Rubin's terms, understanding of sexual difference? And how does this relate to Malibu's desire to resituate sexual difference outside the anti-essentialist discourses of deconstruction, post-feminist and gender theoretical orientations from the end of the 20th century? These are, of course, not easy questions to answer, and sexual difference itself is an unstable term, meaning certain things in certain contexts, in certain languages, both theoretically and linguistically, so much so that Butler and Rubin cannot understand or see clearly how the other uses the term. And this is not due to blind or willful ignorance or a lack of theoretical precision. How does the term sexual difference travel? Is it used differently in French academic context to Anglo-American ones? Genevieve Fraise, a French feminist philosopher, has in various places refused to deploy the concept, if it is a concept, of sexual difference in favour of the clunkier expression, difference between the sexes. As far as Fraise is concerned, sexual difference already carries an established content 
from American gender and queer theory, which she is wary of. But more than that, she seems to be suspicious to Coeur about the content, as if it were one and the same, of sexual difference in the work of French thinkers such as Rigoray, Derrida, Sixou, and Lacan. She does not, as far as I'm aware, mention Catherine's work, but says that I insist on using the expression difference between the sexes, which, unlike sexual difference, offers no set content. It is an empty concept, and that is good. I am not proposing a theory of difference, but I am concerned with the conditions of epistemological thinking about difference between the sexes. Geschlecht différence, as the German language aptly puts it, since Geschlecht is both sex and gender, which in this case is a category devoid of content. Similarly, Paolo Moratti interprets sexual differences in the writings of Butler, Lacan, Erigere and Kristeva as a Kantian transcendental category. As such, Moratti asserts, sexual difference does not put into play any idea of substance or natural or social identity. It is not a natural or cultural fact, but rather the condition of possibility for all experience. Like Kant's transcendental category, sexual difference is devoid of content, but that without which no content could be given. Again, a number of questions open up. Is sexual difference in the French context always already a definition of the difference between the sexes? In choosing to deploy difference between the sexes, Fraise is evacuating the biological or essentialist implications of sexual difference in favour of gender, which Malibu's work wants to emphasise, but at what cost? To further complicate matters, we can now ask if sexual difference is a concept, an idiom, or a quasi-concept. Clearly, for Derrida, it is a quasi-concept. Is it translatable or untranslatable? Does it depend on what language you use or your cultural and intellectual specificities? what Catherine calls a plasticity of situations. <clears throat> Freud, whom Reuben and Butler are clearly grappling with, is himself far from clear in his usage of sexual difference. He doesn't always refer, when using the concept, to the male-female, masculine-feminine demarcations or delimitations. Indeed, when he writes sexual differenzen, Freud is often anticipating feminist and queer theories which stress the panoply of sexual positions, behaviours and orientations. When he speaks of Geschlecht, Freud is suggesting that sex and gender are indistinguishable and sexual difference refers not to immutable anatomo-biological differences between male and female, but to the unconscious pulsions and positions that motivate human subjects in the directionalities of their socio-erotic lives. Although Malibu would doubtless challenge Freud's focus on the human subject, is there not some common ground here when it comes to the plasticity of essence? For Lacan, however, in his return to Freud, there is no necessary link between sexual difference and biological essentialism. Malibu's changing difference and her work in general are a helpful corrective to the dismissal of biology as essentialist by figures as different as Lacan and Fraise. In Malibu's work, a term like essence gets recalibrated so that nature, body, life and sex are not seen as anathema to theories of sex and gender. Foucault makes essentially, if you'll pardon the pun, the same move in focusing on the entanglements of sex, bios, and politics. In moving biological thinking, that is to say both thinking about biology and the thinking that recent work in the field of biology has helped me to shape and inform, Malibu is resuscitating biology from its essentializing readings by both feminist and queer theorists. In changing difference and elsewhere, Catherine draws on the latest work in the areas of neuroplasticity and epigenetics to demonstrate that her notion of cerebrality or cerebral plasticity goes precisely against fixed or rigid notions of identity construction. 
She writes in Changing Difference, as the current incredible growth in epigenetics proves, biology is not essentialist, and the space between bio and trans is perhaps already in itself a biological phenomenon. Is sexual difference as Malibu mobilizes it then a plasticity? And can we argue that Derrida's or Sixou's deconstruction is a, is a plasticity too, despite Malibu's reservations? In various texts, Derrida argues affirmatively, often in the form of dialogues or polylogues, for the movement, disorientability, or transformability of sexual difference. So too does Sixou in Tales of Sexual Difference. This is Sixou. Sexual difference or different sexual is not a region, nor a thing, nor a precise space between two. It is movement itself, reflection, the reflexive sir, the negative goddess without negativity, the ungraspable that touches me. Could we argue that Sexu reads reads sexual difference as a negative essence? As for Derrida, as we will see in a moment, choreography connotes both mobility and instability, carrying away, moving, deporting, displacing, so many of the themes of Derrida and Malibu's book, Counterpath. Sexual difference is a differentiating act of difference or dissemination. As he argues in For Me or Ants, sexual difference is annular, a cut, sex coming from saccare, non-totalizable and plural. In fact, Derrida will most often say sexual differences in the plural. John Caputo has argued that um, in a reading of Malibu that uh, she, can't, she can't argue for the eventual or the riskiness or the chance of the event in her reading of Hegel. Um, and I want to leave that to one side, but to argue that we can push Caputo and Malibu closer together if we substitute the reading of a god to come in Caputo with the idea of a sexual difference to come in Malibu. And that's in an essay called Dream of the Innumerable in which Caputo rescues woman and feminism from the misunderstanding that undecidability or dissemination are bad news for feminism, which is a fairly common feminist reading of Spurs. On the contrary, Caputo argues that dissemination and undecidability are quasi-transcendental conditions for justice, and deconstruction doesn't leave us with a lack, but rather with an opening. So woman on Caputo's reading is irreducible to a proper place or an identification, it's not, as Derrida argues in choreography, a question of finding a new concept of woman, but rather of questioning the very concept of com- concept, which places limits on, fixes, locates, defines, uh, or confines the woman in her place. <coughs> so in insisting, as Caputo does, on the apparatics or risky axiomatics of the question of sexual difference, we can argue or insist that Derrida talks about the, impossibi- the possibility of impossibility or on, a se- on the possibility of a sexual difference to come. Um, Caputo and Derrida are reaching for a beyond, uh, a perergon uh, to sexual difference, uh, which, as Caputo says, would, would not be a transcendent ideal, but rather a little chance for something different or new, something unforeseeable, unprogrammable, unchoreographable um, in advance, a new dance or a new step or a, a new path, which is also a knot. So that might be a new concept of sexual difference, which is also a negative definition of identity or an identity formed perhaps by negation.
This reading of Derrida demands perhaps a reorientation of his Nietzschean side in favour of his more Lembanassian one, which frees us from the straitjackets of identity or the limitations of gender or the law of genre, uh, which impose limits, limits on the proliferation of uh, the polyvocality of voices, uh, of sexual voices. And Malibu's Sintam Voirvenir in the future of Hegel gestures towards this seeing without seeing, a seeing blind of something that has not yet happened, is unforeseeable, unclassifiable, unprogrammable, uh, which Derrida would call the impossible. The very operation of plasticity, as Jean-Paul Martinon argues, exposes the fact that there must be a certain element of madness or insanity, something utterly disrupting within Malibu's synthetic operation of plasticity. Martinon, in a beautiful reading of the future of Hegel, also highlights the term go wonder or aller savoir and explains that uh, with this unusual verbal formulation, the visuality of the figuration and that of knowledge are clearly abandoned. Go wonder literally means to open oneself up to what is radically other. It means at once to be filled with wonder about what is coming and to have doubts about what is coming. And instead of the passivity inherent in waiting for, uh, in, in the Varvonir, you have this subject who waits without waiting. Uh, so you have an activity of departing, go, and at the same time that of disappearing into the unknown. We might ask if go wonder is perhaps a synonym for Caputo's perhaps, or as Martinon proposes, isn't go wonder a perfect synonym for, for plasticity? With its ellipses, go wonder, dot, 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 is perhaps the perfect, if there is such a thing, synonym for sexual difference the sexual difference of or near. What is coming? Who knows? The question of sexual difference for Judith Butler in an essay called The End of Sexual Difference, question mark, is a permanently open one. And <coughs> Butler says that the sexual freedom of the female subject challenged the humanism that underwrites universality suggests that we might consider the social forms, such as the patriarchal heterosexual family, that still underwrite our formal conceptions of universality. The human, it seems, must become strange to itself, even monstrous, to reachieve the human on another plane. This human will not be one, indeed will have no ultimate form, but it will be one that is constantly negotiating sexual difference in a way that has no natural or necessary consequences for the social organization of sexuality. By insisting that this will be a persistent and an open question, I mean to suggest that we make no decision on what sexual difference is, but leave that question open, troubling, unresolved, propitious. Before closing, without closing, we might ask here, ten years on from the end of undoing gender, what relation transgender and transsexuality have to plasticity and the question of sexual difference, since moving and crossing assume different forms in both. In the case of transsexuality, it's a movement towards a social, psychical, and physical alignment, uh, while in uh, transgender, there's a disarticulation between sex bodies and assumed gender identities. Perhaps what is coming lies beyond the confines of two genders, masculine and feminine, something, as Caputo wonders, that would be undecidably miscegenated, something that has not happened yet, something singular, something possible, something impossible, something unimaginable and innumerable. In For Me, Derrida muses, as for sexual difference, we will always wonder, dot, dot, dot. Always wonder, dot, dot, dot. Go wonder, dot, dot, dot.
Listening to Katrine speak and reading her book, Changing Difference, it's easy to detect an air of disappointment with deconstruction. Although deconstruction definitely exposes the structural silencing of women, it is perhaps overly enthralled to the theoretical value of the figure of woman and seems to abandon actual women somewhere in the borderlands between ontology and politics. Here we might sympathise with Antonio Negri's suggestion that deconstruction fails to turn interpretive theory into revolutionary practice. As a figure of essential non-essentiality, woman has no place and therefore appears to be deprived both of agency and of the means for resistance. Without a place, can woman have any power? Now, in order to think about, to respond to this question and to Katrine's critique of deconstruction, I want to think a little bit about this relationship between place and power. So in, in Derrida's double reading of Nietzsche in Spurs, woman is presented as a supplement. Postulated as a shadowy counter to the clarity of truth, we discover instead that woman, here synonymous with style, is constitutive of truth, testifying to its dissimulation, to an originary simulation. If truth is inseparable from style, then philosophy's claim to a truth that is singular and self-present appears false. As Derrida tells us in Spurs, the question of the woman suspends the decidable opposition of true and non-true and inaugurates the epochal regime of quotation marks which is to be enforced for every concept belonging to the system of philosophical decidability. The hermeneutic project which postulates a true sense of the text is disqualified under this regime. Now for readers of Derrida, the use of woman and the feminine as deconstructive tools as tropes for the impossibility of uncontaminated identity, is a familiar one. It can be seen, for example, in the essay The Law of Genre, in which Derrida allies the femininity of the law with its madness. We might read woman, this essential non-essentiality, as facilitating a critique of essence, or at least of a particular notion of essence. This, however, is where Catherine and Jacques part ways with Catherine decrying the violence enacted upon women, upon women, in the name of non-essentialism, and in turn challenging the philosophical dogma of essence as identity, self-presence, and substantial stability. In contrast, she emphasizes the plasticity of essence, maintaining in changing difference that essence has only ever designated the transformability of beings. In turn, she suggests that thinking of woman as having a minimal or situational essence might return a certain agency to woman. Agency which is denied by non-essentialism and its reduction of woman to what she calls an ontological amputation, without essence, place or power. But to what extent are place and power inseparable? Now this question weaves its way through Derrida's text of hospitality, a book which addresses the relationship between the law and its others in particular the foreigner and the woman foreigner. Here Derrida considers, how can one give status to that which lies outside the law without domesticating it and denying its difference? And should one strive for recognition in a system which is constructed upon the necessity of one's expulsion? Now Derrida's discussion here is rooted in his analysis of Sophocles' Oedipus at Colonus, and in the distinction between the foreignness of Oedipus and that of Antigone. The foreigner, 
already granted minimal social status by his possession of a name, is given place by an act of hospitality. And here this is enacted by the bond that Oedipus forges with Theseus, a mutually beneficial gesture with Theseus offering Oedipus residency both in life and death in exchange for Oedipus's posthumous protection of Athens. Oedipus' resultant status is strangely interstitial. He has arrived at a place of rest in which he is no longer a foreigner, yet resists the responsibilities of citizenship. He serves as a reminder both of the excesses and transgressions through which the law is fashioned. In other words, the law's disavowal of its own conditions of existence and of an itinerancy or condition of exile which perversely is proper to the subject. This subject is, of course, male. When Derrida notes that Oedipus, quote, is an outlaw who lays down the law from beyond his corpse, end quote, it is clear that however outlawed or foreign Oedipus might be, as a man he re- remains allied with or an embodiment of the law. Unlike Oedipus, Antigone is unable to capitalise on her foreignness. A double inheritance, both from her father's exile and her sex, the latter gifting her a foreignness that cannot be codified and cannot be placed. Rather, she is triply displaced, dislocated from her domestic destiny as a woman, disinherited of any benefits from her father's newfound status in Athens, and deprived knowledge of and access to her father's burial place. Here, Antigone is what Catherine calls a non-subject, a singular example of the placelessness and thus powerlessness of woman. Here she is like the sophist that Derrida discusses in the essay Cora, outside the law and therefore politically powerless. Again, the connection between power and place seems to be reinforced, and Derrida can do little to help Antigone here other than grant her a place in which to testify. Yet all this sounds a little odd to me, not least because so much of Derrida's work is preoccupied with interruptive power with the potential of that which cannot be represented, placed, or codified. We might think of Derrida's account of the relationship between law and justice to illustrate this. The former universal, economical, and always limited, and the latter singular and excessive. Justice, however, is powerless and placeless without law, and the two were indissociable in their very difference with law always haunted by a justice which can never be fully realised or represented. Justice certainly possesses an interruptive, non-sovereign power here, colonising law and exposing its limitations. However, it is a power which can never be consolidated. We might also return to Antigone, this time to Antigone after Oedipus' death. Here, the protagonist, still placeless, is no longer powerless, or at least no longer powerless in the same way. In illicitly burying her brother, she acts against the law from outside the law, operating at the boundary of politics and the political. She does not claim sovereignty, but exhibits an interruptive power, or counter-sovereignty, embodying a shift, in Judith Butler's terms, from sovereignty to precarity. Yet what is the effect of Antigone's power here, given that she fails even to secure the meaning of her own death? What value are her minimal gains, which cannot secure any ground, given that she is rendered structurally passive? Is hers the kind of power we would look to obtain for women, for women?
I would say not. And for this reason, the fact that Derrida's hands are tied when it comes to claiming for women anything other than the power of interruption, I think that Katrine is absolutely correct to draw attention to the limitations of thinking woman in terms of essential non-essentiality. Now, that's not to say that we should abandon deconstructive thinking entirely. It is perhaps possible to proceed on more than one front, that we might continuously interrogate the notions of power, place, sovereignty, and even radical powerlessness, in addition to searching for stronger grounds for resistance and change than the non-subject of women. Uh, thanks very much, everybody. Um, we've got some time for questions, but Catherine, could it be all right if I ask you a question first? Because there was something... Um, because one of the topics that we were hoping to get more of was sex difference, I was interested to... Uh, to I want to just sort of draw out from what you said, which was focused on the subject position of women. Um, what's the implied account that you're giving there of sex difference. Is, is sex difference something, as it were, that comes after this production of the subject position of women? And so that, as it were, men come into the representation as the other of the subject position that's constructed through that negation and violence? Or is, is there sex difference before that construction of the subject position of women that you outlined? Um, okay, this was about sexual difference, but um, as, I, I think that, as, as Michael very remarkably um, explained, sexual different, difference for us today is a meaningless concept, I would say. Mm, totally deconstructed, very uh, variable in its meaning according to uh, languages, countries, cultures. So I think that any discourse on well, taking for granted that there's something like a sexual difference um, is, well, I suspect this kind of discourse. Um, in France, uh, the discourse of sexual difference has become uh, the discourse, the homophobic kind of discourse. This is the official, I speak for my country, uh, this is the official discourse, like there are two uh, sexes or genders, and this is an argument which is used against uh, same-sex parenthood, same-sex marriage, etc. So for me, I'm very cautious when it comes to that concept. So I prefer today um, introducing this question of uh, violence, of an identity formed out of violence, which of course can also function for the masculine, uh, would have analyzes for, of course, the women, but same thing could be said regarding the masculine, and this is why I talk about Jews as well, and Jewish identity. Um, but at the same time, I think that if there is something like a specificity of the woman, um, something like what Danielle has very, very uh, rightly analyzed um, as uh, this plastic essence of, of the woman, then it would be something which cannot be entirely shared with men, which is a specific mode of being uh, created, shaped by a specific kind of violence. And that's why it's very difficult to, uh, to just 
say that the violence made to women is interchangeable with the, women, with the violence done to men, for example. Right, but is the idea that that idea of the, or the, the subject position of the woman that you outlined there is, as it were, in its production, that produces that sex difference idea? Yes. So, yes? yes. So I was saying, do you, want, do you want to say that it's on the basis of an idea of sex difference that you produce this idea? Or is, no. Work, no. No. Right. Okay. That's why I referred to yeah. Sartre. Of course, Sartre says that uh, the Jewish, Jewish identity, something like Jewish identity, does not exist. Does not it is produced it, yeah. by. Okay. okay, thank you very much. Right, so now do we have mics? Yes, in which case, you please wait uh, for the microphone to arrive when, I, when uh, um, you ask your question. I, I think there's uh, um, but we, If you put your hand up, I can see, see where you are. So we have one there and then one there. Uh, hi. Um, following the distinction you made between being an essence, so can we say that being a woman is acting like a woman because they're both changeable? So it means being a woman does not necessarily mean having a certain characteristic. It's just as long as we act like a woman. Is it? Yes, yes, absolutely. Thank you for this question. Uh, if I insisted upon essence, and you're right, this is um, the, the core of my talk, it is because um, the anti-essentialist movement in post-feminism, uh, for example, women who criticize Irigaray because she was said to be essentialist, is not a right argument, according to me, because it, misunderstood, it mis misunderstands what an essence is. An essence is never, for any philosopher, something stable or it is like the shadow of being. It's very difficult to define what an essence is in philosophy. You can define a being, you can define a substance, but essence is always very difficult to grasp. So you're quite right. Then what is an essence? It's more like a gesture a power of transformability, um, a creation rather than a stable identity. You're quite right. I think that acting as a woman would be an, a good definition. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, all three talks were very condensed. So I, I'm going to continue on this topic, the distinction between you, you draw between essence and being, and you evoke Hegel. And I wasn't sure if, you're, if you invoke Hegel as to draw support for an anti or uh, a, a, a minimal definition of woman that is n not a subject. Is that what, where you were going at? Well, again, I think then Danielle perhaps will add something. Um, what I wanted to show is that the alternative Essence, non-essence. Hmm? Essence uh, in feminism is, for example, Simone de Beauvoir, uh, le deuxième sexe, the second sex. Well, she's supposed to have said that women had an essence. So the alternative between essence and non-essence, like, which is gender theory, like genders have no, uh, no. Ontological consistency. They are all parodies or imitations, etc. I just wanted to show that between these two terms, which are not, which don't satisfy me, either of them, 
that might be perhaps a third or a medium, uh, which, and we, we find your question again, like redefining what an essence is, would escape these two uh, extremes, which... <coughs> Now, one of the, one of the um, themes, perhaps, of both Michael and your paper was uh, that, uh, as, as you've reiterated now, you don't want to start with a given notion of sex difference from which one yes, might... Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Now, one yeah. of the things that, Michael, you put this in terms of was the idea of holding it as something to come, sex difference as something remaining to come, not a given content. Now, I was just interested, because I don't think... I didn't hear you remark on it, as how you think it gets produced that way as something to come? What is it where is the, uh, the practice or the, the way of living out of which what we produce for ourselves in some sense or gets caught, we get caught up in is this idea of the sex difference to come and specifically do, uh, does it get produced that way everywhere or is sex difference to come a remarkably western thing or a European thing or an American thing or a French thing uh, and is so how does it get produced in that form, in that formless form, and it, does it get produced that way everywhere? You might need to point. It's a good question. Um, I don't really have a pragmatic answer to that question, and nor do I think Derrida would have a pragmatic answer to that question. Um, the, the idea of the to come as in terms of what Derrida and Nancy are saying about like sexual differences, uh, differing and deferring, um, could be misconstrued as uh, a sort of endless waiting or passivity and doing nothing, as if there weren't sort of pragmatic concerns to do with what Catherine is talking about uh, at, the, at the end of her paper, about violence, violence towards women and abuse, domestic violence, forced prostitution and so on. I think that we can... Uh, uh, as Derrida often says, like you know, uh, bringing about like uh, justice cannot wait. Okay, so uh, producing uh, a sexual difference to come, any more than producing um, uh, democracy to come, or justice to come, or Europe to come, um, or even uh, what Derrida would say about like you know, sovereignty to come, which would not be, you know. It would be more in, 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 in terms of what um, Danielle is saying about interruption. Um, that it, it's, it's, it's not passive. It's like this idea of go wonder that I was reading in Catherine's work via Jean-Paul Martinon, which is uh, not a passive waiting, but a, an active bringing about of something. Um, but as you say, it would be, it would be formless. Um, we have no way of anticipating who or what will come. And this is this is its, its both its promise, its chance, but also its risk. Um, you know, the sexual difference to come here, there, or anywhere could be a good, in inverted commas, but it also could be the worst. Hmm. Uh, so one of the things I didn't talk about is what I would talk about, I would call um, uh, the sort of um, the karyotopographies of sexual difference, which would be... Uh, maybe better recalibrated as a Cora topography, which would be a sort of placeless place uh, of sexual difference, uh, which would be in, in keeping with, with Derrida's critiques of uh, mondialization and globalization. Uh, so sexual difference would be something which we should be uh, producing 
everywhere and not just as a Western or, or European concept. So again, sort of this idea of the new enlightenment that you have in Spectres and Marx and on. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, question down here, and then I think there's a hand up there after. Yeah. Well, first of all, that's been absolutely fascinating, so I want to thank you all. I want to thank Catherine very much indeed. And uh, I hope this is the beginning of a conversation. Well, it's very clear from some go wonder this conversation is going to go on forever, so that's fine. So I have uh, two questions and then uh, a query via psychoanalysis. So the first question is, Catherine, you use the word repressive several times. And I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that. I also have what's going to sound like a falsely naive question which is, why are women the objects of violence? And then thirdly, I wanted to make a little bit of an unfashionable case for psychoanalysis in terms of, I mean, I'm very struck that you said sexual differences finished as a concept. And I totally agree with you in terms of what's going on in France and the way it's mobilized against, let's call it plasticity, if you like. But it's, it's, a, it's become a reactionary concept. But my understanding of it in psychoanalysis is that children, all children, have to go through the narcissistic wound of recognizing that they could not be at their own conception and that there are limits to the positions they could occupy in the fantasy of having generated themselves. And at some point that has to go through an anatomical distinction. Even if you then spend the rest of your life defying it, or working against it. So there used to be a debate in feminism about whether if you had a different sexuality, you bypassed Oedipus, or whether it was a different negotiation of that trajectory. And I'd love to hear what you have to say, what all of you have to say about that. Sorry, it is three questions. Masquerade, masquerading is one. Well, so I will answer briefly, and then... Um, uh, okay, so... Um, of course, it may be shocking to hear that the artistic paradigm is repressive. At the same time, this is something I discovered um, recently, and I don't know if I will follow this idea, but you know, all this discourse, Nietzsche's discourse on artists, um, he, well, has been, this discourse has been considered as really emancipatory, and I think on the contrary, this is what closes his philosophy, this is what locks it. And when Heidegger says that, in fact, Nietzsche does not talk about art, that it is something else that he has in view, I think he's right. And, and that uh, paradigm of the artist understood at the, as the simulator or the liar, the etc., uh, etc., and the identification between the artist, the, women, the woman, the Jew is, I mean, all of a sudden it appeared to me uh, unbearable. Why is the woman uh, the object of violence? This precisely cannot be asked as a question. It's exactly, it is exactly the same as why the Jews, and, and that's why uh, I, was, uh, I referred to Sartre, why are the Jews victims of uh, anti-Semitism? And, and we, could, we could invoke a thousand reasons and no reason at all. So that's why perhaps violence is the very foundation of the essence of the woman and of the Jew. Um, because precisely 
It is a, it is a, a, an originary question. We, we cannot give reasons for that. And psychoanalysis of... Um, Well, perhaps you can, because you invoke Lacan. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, can, I can probably share in your unfashionable defense of psychoanalysis a bit. I, I don't want to the same like I was saying that sexual difference is over, which is why I said that at the end, uh, Butler is, when she calls her essay the end of sexual difference question mark, uh, she's, she's, it's a citation of, of a, a speculative question, one which she answers in the negative, no, sexual difference is not over. And, of course, the bedrock of both uh, Gail Rubin and Butler's explorations of sexual difference are psychoanalysis, uh, particularly Freud and Lacan. And as I pointed out, Freud uh, radically anticipates uh, some of these queer, queer debates about the plasticity of sexual difference. Um, but also, I mean, uh, it's interesting that you have this return, not, not in, in French feminism, but in Anglo-feminism. Um, let's give Joan Scott's most recent book as an example, uh, which is The Fantasy of Feminist History, I think, where she argues for um, a psychoanalytic revivification of the concept of sexual difference as a more useful concept even than gender. So I think what we're witnessing is, you know, um, this, this taking up of sexual difference in contexts outside of France where the, it's deeply problematic, as Catherine has pointed out, uh, which is why the translation of Butler and others to France has not been an easy one. Um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's still it's not. And still not. <laughs> no. Yeah. No. Third question. <laughs> why don't you have a go? Um, I'm not sure I've got anything to add to that, really. I suppose um, the thing it made me think about when you were talking was um, thinking back to Antigone. There's been lots of readings of Antigone, lots of psychoanalytic readings of Antigone, um, which associate her with the, the Lacanian real, I suppose, um, countering some kind of model of the symbolic. And I think there is some level, even if you're reading um, Derrida and Derrida's anti-essentialist Nietzsche in which woman is associated with writing which is associated with the real um, but I'm not sure where that takes us um. Can I pick up on the thing about the plasticity of sex difference again then, just uh, take that one step further with relation to psychoanalysis, certainly it was a, a major part of Freud's biological thinking that he thought that human beings were animals and that he says, like all animals, would have a kind of undifferentiated sexual orientation. Um, does that kind of... I, I, that's a very... That's a, a sort of biological way of putting the point, perhaps more um, robustly than any of you want to put it, but in terms of an differentiated and undifferentiated schemas, uh, is the... Would you place the sort of... Un, uh, the what he would think of as the, the originally undifferentiated formation of sexual orientation as inside that same plasticity of sex difference? Or, is, or are, they, are they different themes, as it were? 
Well, the problem is that biology today appears as um, one of, certainly one of the most uh, deconstructive and deconstructing field, uh, which totally uh, challenges its own definition as a deterministic science. Um, genetics is now becoming obsolete. Epigenetics is uh, taking the lead. And it, it is very clear that what biology, I speak very generally here, of course, uh, explains is that very uh, quickly what is, let's say, natural, uh, animal, um, genetically determined is immediately uh, reshaped and refashioned by epigenetics, that is, by environment, culture, etc., even in animals. So uh, the idea of a nature, as well, in the way we... Well, I was trying to withdraw it from that, from something like something undifferentiated, something prior to any differentiation that comes about. Yeah, this is what, what I call what changing difference. The title of that book means that that is something more originary than, than yeah. difference, right. which is the capacity, absolutely. The animal, right? Yes. But, uh, you don't need to do that. But I was, what I was wondering is if, if that thought of the undifferentiated sexual power, sexual orientation, is something that you think is inside your notion of the plastic sexual difference, <laughs> or are they separate? I like the idea also of a dialectics. So in the undifferentiation, which is an interesting concept, um, we need perhaps to dialecticize it more, like to see how it, it is in conflict with difference or that it is a conflictual notion per se. Okay, there's a question up the back. Yeah. Um, yes, I guess this will be a question to Katrina and Danielle. Um, yeah, regarding... Um, the, the place or the potentia, um, um, the political place or potentia of this anti-anti-essentialist um, rest restoration of a singular essence of the woman, if I understand you. Um, well, really to clarify, um, I guess, um, if um, the essence is both productive and um, has a generative agency um, and is almost a becoming, and listening to your previous um, answers, is there a violence to this becoming too? And in a political sense, is this then emancipatory? Whereas in your, in your um, reference to the particularity of the violence against women, it seems to be more of a project of solidarity after um, reaching um, um, a position of reacting, of restoring um, a singular essence against the anti-essentialist. And I wondered how this would compare this idea of a potential becoming to, say, the very criticised concept of Deleuze, Deleuze and Guattari, of a becoming woman, being um, a primary, emancipatory, almost a universal becoming to de-stratify um, identity and um, gender and all the power complexes that, that, that term implies. So it's, it's a question about clarification. Thank you. Thank you, Danielle. Go. Um, I'm not sure how well I can answer for the Deleuze comparison, but I suppose part of what I was trying to express is a kind of um, suspicion of um, Derrida's use of the figure of woman. And I think that probably applies to a suspicion of becoming woman in, mm -hmm. in Deleuze and Guattari as well. Um, mm -hmm. That woman simply becomes a trope. Um, and I'm not sure how functional that is for women. Um, 
that theoretically it's useful, and it's useful in terms of um, refiguring certain concepts. Um, but I'm not sure how... I don't know. It, feel, it feels violent on some level, I think. Um, even even yeah. when Derrida does it, and I've, you know, I'm still trying to figure out if there's another way of reading these texts that um, might be more fruitful, I suppose. Mm. And, and, well, all, the, all that started from a very um, concrete situation, which is my situation as a philosopher. <laughs> mm, I'm doing continental philosophy, and I'm a professor of philosophy, and uh, in my country, at least, mm, this uh, has always been reserved to men. And so the question came, initially came, uh, like, what is it to, to be a philosopher, a woman philosopher? And I couldn't accept to be defined, as Danielle um, said, as a trope or a, a style or something which, is disrupts, which just disrupts the masculine truth. That, that, sh that was something else, of course. That, that was something like an identity that I had to define, and I couldn't be satisfied with the idea that what I was doing was just to put a little grain of salt into the masculine uh, kitchen, you know, cuisine. Uh, and at the same time, I was perfectly aware that I was not doing philosophy as men were doing it. So I had here to, to, to think of something um, and I think this should be applicable to any kind of concrete situation. Uh, but philosophy was interesting because there are very, very few, there have been very, very few women philosophers in the West. Um, we've run out of time. That, that oh, last bit was just, uh, just took on a really interesting turn. I, I, ju I just watched um, recently Hannah Arendt talking in conversation in the 50s in Germany, one of her first times back, and uh, the uh, interviewer introduces her as a, um, as a philosopher and a professor of philosophy. And she said, no. And she says, I'm not. I'm and not. And then, but then she says, it's not because I think women can't be philosophers or professors of philosophy. So uh, she's right. Um, Danielle, Michael, and Professor Malibu, thank you very, very much.